Hello and welcome to the Extreme Perspectives podcast. This is our first episode. We're thrilled to bring you these conversations with creative outliers, misfits, rebels, and crazy ones from the Sense Network. I'm your host, Jeremy Brown. My life has been spent seeking out extreme perspectives to inspire creativity and help some of the world's most innovative companies to be more innovative. This month, we're talking to the outlier and Zen creative, Rachel Liu. Keep listening as we discuss the future of leadership and how it's creating open spaces and open dialogue, the collective intelligence of the Chinese healthcare system and how to create better ideas using cross-cultural intelligence, how to find your voice, build creative confidence and shift your mindset from feeling vulnerable to validated. And finally, we talk to Rachel about her passion to create a community of inclusive pioneers. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Jeremy. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right, thanks. Thanks for uh, making time for the conversation today. I want to start off with some really fast questions. Who, what, where, who you are, where you're from, what you do. Okay, so I'm Rachel Liu. Um, I was born in the Cotswolds. I'm currently living in London and I guess my professional life, I do service design, but I'm a creative at heart. Excellent. Now, here's the big question of the day. You have to choose one of these. Are you an outlier, a misfit, a rebel, or a crazy one? I would say outlier. Excellent. Great. I know a little bit about your thoughts around cultural intelligence, but I'd love to know the journey that you've been on through your life and sort of what has led you to be thinking about and acting on this uh, today? Um, I guess part of the lockdown <laughs> has been a definite trigger, more because it really look at what really matters. And I think part of the movement of the Black Lives Matter, where can my role sit and be within that space? And I'm always one person that really, I guess, driven by passion. And I, and I like to make more impact with the work that I do. And it just happens that over the years, kind of fighting, I would say, before, between the Western and Eastern world, I never knew, I think until a few years ago, when I was learning about leadership, which is actually all about understanding who you are. So it's uncovering those really vulnerable parts but actually it's integrating where both can coexist. So I don't actually need to fight it. It's just kind of a different way of thinking, a different approach. And actually it makes everything much more richer. I have a understanding as an outlier between those two worlds. You know, I might not fit into one or the other, but actually through the research that I do do, get into more strategic work, those insights are real nuggets for today's businesses, whether it's improving or coming up with a new idea and service, or if it's actually about cultivating a good culture. Um, and that's where that inclusion becomes a big part. Like how do you really design to make things inclusive? People talk about that over the years, but what does that really mean? And I guess for me feeling excluded in certain experiences has helped me to figure out actually what are the kind of core ingredients for that and just talking to people opening about it 
like open, quite open terms. What was really interesting was that actually everyone wanted to talk about it. There's just no medium or channel or way to talk about it because you know, it's, not, it's not a pleasant, it's not comfortable topic to talk about in moments when you're feeling kind of excluded per se. Um, but actually when you have that experience and the feeling, that what makes design much more powerful in a way. So how do you kind of get people to feel included at every touch point or every step? And that could be in work and life. So what experiences have you had to, to inform this thinking? I guess um, experiencing culture shock going abroad has really changed the way I think about things. So as a British-born Chinese, BBC, some people call it, I guess I always thought I had traditional values. I always thought that I'd try to integrate both of them or I'm quite, you know, there's some Eastern elements there. But it's only when going abroad to somewhere like China, I didn't speak the language, you know, I didn't realise how westernised my thinking was. That's that kind of weird acronym. So westernised, that I'm actually quite educated within the whole education system and I was working in the education space so I understood the competitiveness there was because if you don't if you don't get to a certain level in China you're left out you're left behind there's no more opportunities so it's so fierce compared to say in the UK so that was quite interesting it was almost almost undoing and questioning all the things I thought I knew <laughs> Um, and assumptions that I have made or beliefs that I have made and to really understand why. So certain things really frustrated me when I was in China. So an example was when I went to the GP um, to see a doctor and my friend was the translator for me. So that was really nice of her. But I was just like, why are other people in the room with me? Why is there no privacy? Why is there, you know, this is not right and everything. But is there normal? Because they're much more that kind of community collective kind of thing where they all share knowledge by default. So that was an opportunity for them to kind of learn more tips and stuff. So they don't always have to make trips to the doctors that I would never have thought of it that way because I was really defensive. I was like, why are they watching me and why are they listening in? Like, you know, where's the personal boundaries and things? So you're saying the reason it was open is so other people can listen in and learn. So it's sort of improving their collective intelligence. Sort yeah, of. yeah, because it's quite communal, quite collective kind of thing by default. And that's one of the biggest, I guess, difference between the Western and Eastern. There is this kind of collectivism in general so an example was with the face mask since the lockdown right um i was very kind of conscientious and observant of okay when do i wear a face mask but abroad face masks were the first thing that sold out and they were questioning why new role is not you know why is it such demand in uk um, my friends just didn't understand it because everyone by default would wear the face mask. It's like, I don't want to spread, you know, anything. It's more to protect everyone around you. It's a respect almost that in UK, it's never been a norm. You know, it's a new thing. It, it kind of means that you are infected almost. I don't know. There's that 
negative connotation to face masks. So it's very different. And in Japan, I remember going there for like near Halloween, everyone was wearing black face masks and it was a cool thing. It was very trendy to wear it as a default. So you can see that the cultural norms really, you know, kind of means that the interpretation and the why they do things the way they do, that's what we really need to understand. Otherwise there's just misunderstanding and then there's just lots of conflicts. So do you think there are specific people who need to understand, or do you think this is important for sort of everyone on planet Earth to have a, a better appreciation of what you're working on? I think everyone um, isn't aware of their own privileged blind spots. And I think until you are working in those spaces, you might not ever be aware you don't know you don't know the own bubbles that you are living in so for example like the London bubble is is one example like that the amount of work that we do and think well if it's in London the rest of the UK will be like that as well that solution would work but because it seems so distant and so far we almost don't it's it's kind of quite abstract we can't conceptualize it and that's why what we've done with research is really bringing the stakeholders in a journey with us, seeing that in the process itself, so they can hear from, say, different learners of how they think about things, because their mental model might be quite different. And that means that, you know, like, it, it changes like the way that we design things, like maybe we need it more modular. So you get actually inspiration for somewhere like, um, Japan, where if you see their compartments and everything, it's very small space, right? So they might be using one space for their bedroom, for the dining, you know, to eat and everything. But because everything's designed so modularly and you can pack it away, could we not use that inspiration to then, you know, think about designing small spaces within the UK, for example? So actually, I don't think there's enough that cross-pollination of ideas because we always, I guess the conditioning, think that the Western is the best way and, and the Eastern have been looking at it that way too. Like we want to be in America. If you translate the word America in Chinese characters, it's like beautiful, beautiful country. But actually some of the things that are maybe slightly more Eastern ideas, there could be inspiration there too. Some of the things that COVID has really surfaced up is really like, what really matters? It's back down to basic needs. <laughs> and it's for us to really take a pause, actually. But you can see that some people worked even faster or quicker, because that's more of their survival way of, you know, doing things. So what, what have you observed over the lockdown period? Are there any observations that, that you've made that are particularly pertinent to this? I think what's interesting is the, the human interaction, right? Because everyone's on screens and things. So I've heard mixed things about some have been thriving. So they feel that they can maybe have their voice heard because it's a different medium, which is super interesting because maybe some which are maybe the quieter voice and things. There are maybe the chat and stuff like that where they can almost be a bit more reflective and then add their input. 
but it, I would have to say it has to be designed for because you can put people all in one room and go, let's work together. But if you're not really aware of how do you set that dynamics to make it a really safe space for people to share, you're not really going to have a meaningful conversation or get the, or get the output that you want from it. So I think what was been interesting, I've seen like there's quite a lot of like the co-creation style where it just, they create the space using the visual, using a combination of tools, using the breakouts in Zoom, where you can have the smaller intimate, uh, like intimate conversations, as well as a slight bigger one, but giving people time as well, because not everyone is good at thinking aloud or being the loudest you know it's it's kind of making sure that everyone's voice is heard so it does make me question like oh okay what other ways can we facilitate those conversations um, in a more meaningful way and I guess that's because for me one crucial part is like building trust online is different um, and, and that's just more of a curiosity that's got me to to look at how, how might this work so how are you bringing this all together, all these observations? Because it sounds like really valuable learnings you're putting together. How are you, how are you using that? Can you sort of share some of those ideas and, and sort of what you're, what you're pulling together? So one part is doing, um, having done talks has helped me to kind of consolidate, well, what are the sort of, um, it's almost like a framework, you know, first of all, look at what your privileged blind spots are. Kind of with the weird acronym you know is it westernized are you educated is it industrialized you know so forth really question those things secondly is really looking at yeah it's actually all about you first it's the awareness like piece because then it's your circles how culturally diverse is that what does that look like within that space your space first and then it's looking at, well, here, based on research and insights, there are certain cultural traps. For example, what, does, what, what might uh, a trap be? For a service design point of view, like channels or access. So we assume that because Google, you know, kind of Facebook are so widely used and everything, we assume that every country, because, you know, it's the biggest, it's most known in, in UK and in, in Canada and US and so forth is used the same way but what we realized so somewhere like Philippines I didn't know this until I went out there um, they use Facebook much more heavily I think for us we've been declining our use in Facebook but for them because when you buy a data sim it's unlimited Facebook time of course they're going to use it a lot and I didn't know the reason until I talked to one of the education agents and she she told me why. So just little nuggets like that. And then you contrast with China where Google is banned. You know, I think everyone forgets that there is Google's banned, Instagram is banned. You know, even uh, like they have their own kind of WeChat, which is everything's integrated. It's so seamless. They have everything in one app. They've made it a whole ecosystem. Whatever you pay, everything is through that app. And it's interesting how fast they grew from something that was very cash focused in the past whilst I was living in China. But five years onwards, they're pretty much cashless. Like every time I visited China, 
it changed. And I think that was what's interesting. It's like, you have to kind of, the research you do doesn't always last that long either. So it has to be just enough research that it's iterative. But mm -hmm. there are certain patterns that you can kind of see just to at least question. Then, okay, you might generate ideas, but it's all about how, how might you nudge those behaviors that you want them to kind of have. Um, and there's a model which is the, it's based on the behavioral design um, BJ Fogg model. And it's all about your ability. So there's like maybe constraints like access or money or other things, time and things. Um, and then there is one, I can't quite remember the top of my head right now, um, motivation. So it's something that you can't really force or there needs to be a certain level of motivation to do it. If it's not easy to do, just like building habits. Um, and I think about this because we're in that learning space. So a lot of the things that we design is getting them to learn, getting them to grow um, to the next kind of stage. How do we help them through that transition? You know, if it wants to feel like a guided, is it more of a coach? Does it need to be much more hands-on? Um, does that need to be that personal element? Or could we use something like AI and stuff? How can we make that language again, that human aspect that we kind of tend to not embed enough within sometimes of the products we think too much on the technology side. So it's bringing that um, into the surface, really. So when you give your talks, um, what types of people come along to that? And what do they get out of it? What, what attracts them? So a lot of the talks at the moment I guess is a, similar to my community of researchers, user experience designers, strategists, anyone working in digital, other service designers so within that space. I think for them is to look at things with different lenses that we might not usually uh, question and it helps them just inform their work and do that kind of almost make the impact that they want to make. I think designers always want to make positive change. So it's almost to give them a framework to help them to, to do that based on real life case studies as well. So sometimes it's more case study examples that I've done, like how do you build a service which is um, for English language learning, for anyone who wants to study and migrate abroad. You know, let's unpick that. Let's look at the frameworks and things that I have used. Let's look at the journey mapping that I have done. And how do we compare with one market to another? So it's really kind of almost sharing that knowledge so that the conversation can grow. And what happens is that usually people might come to me or they might want to have the conversation deeper um, or they might want to be mentored or coached. And this is why... Uh, recently, I thought that actually launching something as a side project, kind of inclusive pioneers, is just a way of growing that conversation more of a broader audience. Because mm -hmm. I don't think this has to be just within the design space, actually. No, I agree. I think, I think creativity is one of those things that makes us uniquely human. And it applies to all of us, not just people who choose to do it as their their day job so yeah i couldn't agree with you more you you talk about cultural intelligence and we talk about creative intelligence but there's clearly a lot of crossover 
in, in sort of what we observe and, and why we think it's so valuable. So what's the next step? So at the moment, I'm getting people to see if they're interested, whether it's workshops that they would want or whether they want to kind of help to co-create what that community might be like. It's still very early on. And it's at the moment, I've had a few conversations and it's super interesting how, how do you get people to have a voice? Yeah. T tell me a little bit more about um, finding voice. Is that something you've experienced personally? Yeah, so um, I guess my calling for the Inclusive Pioneers side project was that saying that invisible voices do matter. So that was the blog that I wrote. Um, and it's to really gather my thoughts on that because a lot of the time we shy away or there's the confidence thing or we are not enough. And that is so common. I think it's more like, well, actually, how can we help people then to help them have that confidence, to help them find, yeah, their voice, not, not other people's voices. So it was really interesting because I guess my journey, when I started, I'm like, oh, I need to have role models, but I want to become that person or that person there. And I remember one of my mentors was like, no, 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 no. It's actually really figuring out more of who you are. And I'm like, no, no, but I don't want to know about that part. I want to know, yeah, how to get there. So we're kind of this like, oh, what's the next biggest goal? And we're always thinking of the achievement part. But what's more powerful, and me and my mentor, we did a joint um, presentation this year, talk. And it was about growing leadership through mentorship. So I've been with him for three years and he's been coaching me. And he got me out of my comfort zone. He got me to talk about the stories that were really vulnerable, where I think I was not good enough to say, do a talk, public speaking. And this was because, I think it was because it was more prestigious. I was like, oh, it's strategy. Look, there's lots of top leaders. They are director level, you know, et cetera, et cetera. How can I be good enough to, to do it. And he's like, I've seen you talk, you can apply for it. And I just kind of coach you on what sort of questions you need to answer. And I remember going, uh, getting in and then I was like, no way, I actually got an opportunity to do the to talk. Um, and I'm like, shit, <laughs> I actually have to figure out what the talk is now. <laughs> the hard work actually begins there. And it's interesting, even when I delivered the talk, and this was a story that I did talk about, I thought I failed. I thought I did really badly. I was like, oh my God, now over 200 people saw me live, did the talk, couldn't answer the questions. I wanted to just hide away. And actually people were coming up to me and going, oh, can I find out more? So, you know, this and this and that. So I was like, oh, okay that wasn't what i expected so it's really yeah kind of really to think about how do i kind of have that confidence to know that i am okay and good enough or i can continuously keep learning even if i make mistakes it's okay so we observe this there's a a vulnerability uh before you share things yes and then once you've shared it you uh you can start to feel validated because it's become real and you've you've put it out there but you were saying people coming up to you afterwards what sort of things were they saying um they just were really curious i think it's to continue the conversation but i think because 
it's talking through the emotion part and the storytelling part. And I present it that way because that's, I find that's the easiest way for me to do it. Um, and it's a bit of me where I add that passion, that passion is that confidence actually, is that courage. Um, and that's what then makes it really interesting because sometimes when you approach a person for the first time and you don't really know who they are, but there's no common thread of what that conversation is, it becomes very generic. So what do you do? But what do you do isn't really like telling you the whole person. Yeah. It, that's just one aspect of it. And I think we, we tend, and, and that's why I've, I don't usually enjoy networking events at all. They're not that kind of intimate, meaningful, like conversations that you get. And interesting what happens with the talks is that every time afterwards, people follow up because they want to understand more or how they can learn more about it or how they might apply it. You know, it sparks that curiosity. Yes, that's a very important word, isn't it? So what sort of people are following up and, and what sort of feedback are you getting from them? So it's been interesting that um, the people who are more that outlier like me, they might have lived in two different, say, cultures or, you know, kind of have that mixed kind of identity where they don't might feel that they fit to conform to something, but they feel that that's like all, but all their lives they've been trying to figure out a way to belong in one or the other and things like that in these boxes. And it's actually like going, no, 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 but not having these boxes are okay. So, so it's interesting that that's the people that I've been almost attracting. And it was super interesting to the people who are Asian that I've also attracted to. And I did wonder, I was like, why is it that the fact that I attract more, I guess, the Asians more in some sense, or when, I'm a, when I was a mentor, there was loads of mentees that were of an Asian kind of culture. And actually, a lot of it comes down to that psychological safety. You know, we need to feel safe. We need to feel understood. And there's a bigger, more chance to, because you are more relatable and you might have gone through an experience, which is interesting. And not saying that that's, that's right or wrong, um, but it's interesting that that's the kind of people that kind of are coming to me. So this might be a, a tricky question to ask, but I'll, <laughs> I'll give it a shot anyway. Um, how do you design for that? So you're a designer, you've got this insight around building trust. I, how, um, how might you go about designing for something like that? What have you, what have you observed? So in terms of research, building that rapport and spending more time on that preparation, getting to know a bit about who they are, makes a huge difference. So I haven't had a problem, say, even with different cultures, Dubai, India, Turkey, and so forth. I haven't really had a, a hurdle to kind of come across, but I think it's more just being really friendly and non-judgmental from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's those principles. It's like, how do you make it that it's not judgmental, it's very open. Um, and it's those little qualities, like what are the small things that you can do that can make them feel a bit more heard or a bit more safe? 
And sometimes it is just checking in on them. Um, and it's the same with my colleagues, like, you know, now we're kind of in a team that's kind of, you know, kind of working more remotely. That's very unusual for us. And a lot of times where we, where we go into a meeting and jump into a meeting, we're like, right, what's the agenda today? You know, uh, let's get on it. But we forget about that human aspect of it, where normally if you were to see that person face to face, there are a few couple of small things that, you, you know, it's quite normal to do. Um, and I think it's just remembering those things. Like, how would you want to be invited if you were the other person as well? I was going to ask, because you joined us recently for one of our uh, meetups. Yes. And I wondered what you made of that, because that is essentially a bunch of complete strangers meeting online at a given time yeah. with no agenda. <laughs> I think it's, um, I like the ice, the icebreaker is super important and the icebreaker has to be quite open and that gets you into that curiosity mindset really early on. So I think Rashida got us to think about, you know, like a word of something, I can't remember the exact thing, but I think thinking about it in that way, there's a bit of novel to it and there's a bit of that playfulness. So I always think of like, if you're going to make something inclusive, make it inclusive for a child to be invited that they want to play, because that usually is quite universal. Um, and it's interesting that sometimes strangers, you can get rid of those barriers more sometimes, you know? Yeah. Which yeah. I find that's quite interesting. I'm not sure the reason why or your thoughts on that, but sometimes it's easier. Yes, we were listening to a completely bonkers lecture by a quantum physicist the other day who was talking about the future of humanity. And one of the things that, um, one of the examples he gave was, um, I think I'm correct in saying this, it was with, when there is a, it, it, within the Native, uh, Native American culture, when, there's a, when there was an issue, the 30 or 40 people who could influence that issue all got together and sat in a circle, but they didn't actually talk about the issue. They just talked to each other, just through talking about, I don't know, I guess the weather or, you know, just that stuff. That's, you know, I think that's, and this is where I was just trying to join some dots with what you were saying. You know, what I took away from hearing that was actually a lot of those problems take care of themselves just when you start to level with people and you just open up as a normal human being and you know when you say sometimes it's easier with strangers yeah because you don't know anything you have to be a little bit curious you have to strike up a conversation you have to go searching for maybe some common ground or you might have to lean in and and get interested in something that you know nothing about and so suddenly that puts you in a very vulnerable space and, you know, they can educate you and they kind of give you something. And that's where, you know, and that's where those kind of those bonds and that trust come from. And sometimes, you know, when I, when I thought about that example, I was thinking, you know, that could actually be the answer. You don't necessarily need to have a big, clever agenda. The smart thing to do might just get a bunch of people together and just get talking. Yeah. I do wonder with people with authority though, how might you do that? So I think it might be harder knowing that person is of authority. You kind of act in a different way. 
So one pattern, another cultural pattern that I see between the, the kind of more Eastern mindset is this whole hierarchy. So it's almost like, oh, but then my opinions won't count, you know, I can't, yeah, I won't express what I really like feel and can't do that. I have to respect more the, the elders, they know better, et cetera, et cetera. So I wonder in those kind of environments, how might you just break away from that? Do you um, sometimes need to think about those leaders? What do you think is going on for them? How do you think they feel if they're meeting someone who may not feel that they measure up or shouldn't even be having a conversation with them? How do you think the leaders feel? Yeah. So you were, you were thinking about it from the perspective of someone yeah. talking to a leader, asking, yeah. you know, a lot of what you've talked about is about building empathy. I just wondered if you'd had any thoughts on, you know, what might be going on for, for that leadership team when they see stuff going on or there's things that they might be completely dislocated from, you know, you know, they may not have that same level of awareness that you have. Yeah, it's a good question because I guess it depends on that kind of how they define leadership, right? Yeah. Because my perception of leadership might be quite different. You know, like there is this whole redefining what leadership really means today. And I might have a different take on, on it than say maybe other generations or other cultures and things. So what's your view on leadership? So I feel like leadership is one where you can actually lead and drive change from influence change from there. I do kind of believe that the more inclusive ones are the ones that wants everyone to be heard, wants things, you know, kind of quite done collectively. But I, I have also experienced, you know, being in China and I've seen very different types of leadership out there. Some I definitely don't resonate with, um, which is why I brought up the question, you know, sometimes like if people are in that position and I've been fortunate, I haven't really been in that. And I can actually question and be curious in that, even if sometimes there is a level of fear. And I think there always is. It's like, actually, even with that level of fear, what can you do to add a little bit more courage you know, and build on that? Um, because I think leading with that kind of influence, you become that role model for others too. So what practical things could a leader do? What would you observe? What sort of practical things? they be doing to be more inclusive yeah it's a good question i mean you mentioned empathy and i think that word is used a lot so i don't want to kind of i i do think that kind of cultural intelligence element so we're living in a world that's very uncertain you know kind of things are complex actually they are completely okay of not knowing the answer <laughs> and they are okay to bring other people in the room you know and be challenged. And I think it's that openness to it, that mind shift that like, actually we are all probably relearning, unlearning and learning together. And that is part of the process. So I think having that mindset from right at the beginning is super important. Um, so building that trust, how do you make it that kind of safe playground for everyone to be involved? Building trust, what, what, activities are you undertaking in order to do that? I think getting to know who they are, <laughs> the other person. Mm -hmm. Because if you know who they are, what they're motivated by, and actually what their 
their skills and what their passions are. I think it goes a long way. Someone was telling me the other day, you can't really like motivate someone to do stuff, really. Not, not, that, not to that degree, you can't really influence, but you can influence their, like build on their ability, regardless of what constraints that they have. I think that's, yeah, that's super important. Um, slightly different question now. As a part of your work, you've got your, um, I think you talk about your perspective lens. Um, and you've got experts, business and users. And then under users, you talk about extreme users. Yeah. What extreme users have you encountered? And how has that been useful to you? So a lot of the times when we, so I take the extremes as in people we always don't believe we can design for. <laughs> the ones that we feel get in the way of decision making, that are inconvenient that are hard to reach, that are maybe the ones that have a quieter voice, you know, um, that especially since an example would be, um, there's one part of the business at Pearson where it's B2B and we, we get a lot of the kind of decision, the people who are decision makers are the ones who are the schools, right? But we build the products for the kids. We don't generally get to the to the kids very easily because maybe they're harder to reach you know they might not be able to express themselves through words but actually when we're designing something again we need that emotion side where's the human element part of how they view the world through progress and things um, and we we decided to be more playful and have the kind of co-creative things where they did arts and crafts almost and it was a really simple example where it was building a progress report over time. What does those achievements look like? What sort of things do they even like collecting? You know, and we got them to do a video of who they are, get them to show us their favorite toys. What do they kind of, um, yeah, the collections of things, whether it's stamps, whether it's games or whatever it is. And we did it for different age groups because I think there was the whole idea that, oh, we need to design one, I know, report thing for all the age groups and we're like mm, i don't think that's the case sort of thing so we kind of make sure like okay well let's let's try this out and it was super interesting to so say like a five-year-old they view the world through characters only so when you kind of get them more like what they think of achieving more things they will add more eyes <laughs> or they will add more, more mouths so it was like, oh, right. So that is their world. They can't understand the world of obstacles at the moment or making progress in a different way. Whereas you've got the slightly older, then it became more of a game. It's like, oh, okay, well, once upon a time there was this and then this will happen and then this drama happens. And they were so imaginative. And it was really interesting for those who are non-English speakers and the English speakers, like English as a second language. Because then we saw when we got them to write a postcard to summarise the story, we can see the difference in terms of what they really understood in, the, in like a report time of thing. So it was like, oh, talk about all these jargons with learning objectives, you know, things like that. In their world, they don't understand it in that, and they probably don't care. <laughs> so I think that gave us like almost reimagine the the kind of how we view progress much more broader. 
And those insights, because they were tangible as well, we can make clips of it. You know, you can make the report almost telling that story of like, look, when they grow older, this is what, this is what they expect and things and show it visually. With that, with that insight, um, what did that lead you to design differently? How did you act on that? Yeah, so we end up actually making different variations. We had the whole character introduction to it. It just made everything much more vibrant because there, there's a lot of the times where there comes the enterprise stuff just seems to be heavy, doesn't it? It, it seems to be clinical. Um, and it was one of the first ones that we've actually made it much more of that kind of vibrancy in things that it got, it got spread as a whole case study around as well, different departments and actually different countries. So it, and it actually gave us a whole platform to kind of go, oh, we can design for young learners. Young learners could be much more creative in the way that we do things. And it gave us permission to even think about a young learner design system, for example. What does that kind of look like? So we've almost got the, the kind of, I guess we built the trust by showing value to our stakeholders, then we can actually kind of uncover more things we would like to explore. So I'm just going to switch the conversation slightly now. What what do you what do you call um, your project? Have you got a name for this side hustle? Um, I call it the Inclusive Pioneers. It's the project. Yeah. Yeah. And so thinking ahead. Where, where ultimately would you like to get that to? What would you like to do with it? What's the, you know, what's the, what's the end goal? How will you know you've, you've, you've ticked this box and achieved this goal you've set yourself? I'm not sure if I've set myself a concrete goal. Um, partly is to raise awareness and just almost build a community, I would say first. I think that's more important is that human aspect first. Mm -hmm. How I can help and educate, that can come in so many formats. And I think that's the part to explore. So yeah, I would like to, yeah, co-create what that community might look like and just get people involved just to build on each other's stories and things just to have inspiration ideas initially. And then, yeah, like finding more formal ways of like actually if this is a, a key topic like voice i don't know or awareness of privileged blind spots and stuff we can then do workshops or things like that a bit more interactive mm -hmm. but i always find like learning by doing and kind of the experiential way is my preferred method of learning so i kind of want to bring some of those things to life as well so how could the sense network potentially help you do that what could you know if you were to say three things that we could potentially kind of tell your story to the network which we're doing now and if there was a an ask what you know what what could be a practical thing that people could do to help so they can definitely check out the actual sign up kind of page to see whether you know it interests them there are free options you know whether it's four options in fact whether it's meetup or a workshop that they want to attend, or they want to co-create some of their ideas, or they want to share a story. It links to the blog as well, why I started it, which is about the kind of invisible voices matter. 
Um, you know, you mentioned Black Lives Matter at the beginning, and you're talking about, you know, what you're thinking about in relation to that. Yeah, I, I feel that even I need to learn much more about the whole Black Lives Matter and the educate myself. So I know that for a fact that I have my own kind of blind spots, but there are certain similarities in terms of getting people voices heard in a way. It was really interesting hearing some stories of representatives, even those within our work. It was so much more courage for them to share their story. So how do we kind of get the scaffolding in place to make sure that they can do that? what should it be or how how what is my space within that so it's like that sense of belonging part mm. is quite a key thing what does that really mean in this modern day and I just that we don't really talk about it that much there's no channel for that i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the black lives matter and what you're doing as well well there are so many voices and so many stories mm. and I think that um, there are so many different drivers as well and um, and I probably come from my perspective is about having an open mind on everything so you know it's in terms of listening understanding that's just by our very nature what we do as a business I don't think we could have been successful doing what we done sure. many years all over the world with different cultures if we didn't have that so for us there's a little bit of decoding to kind of say all right you know we all feel pretty comfortable with you know difference and you know one of the things that we're always trying to do is um kind of understand those similarities and differences and kind of pinpoint the stuff and, and what can we actually do to remedy um, situation you know what's that intervention that that you can you can make um, it's hard because it's a systemic issue isn't it so it's like what could we be doing within what we know you know we can't we can't solve all of this on our own but what role what could we be contributing to um, and actually do, I mean and actually doing it in a thoughtful way not just jumping on the sort of jump, you know, jumping in and saying, well, we'll do this and we'll do that. It's like, no, how can exactly. you make a, make a real difference? It goes way, you know, in terms of the inclusivity that we think about, you know, it has to be, you know, could anybody engage with this, irrespective of where they live in the world? I mean, yes, we might have a language barrier. You know, there's, there's a language issue that we know that we can't deal with right now. But in terms of accessibility, in terms of taking part, you know, we actually, as a, as a business, that's exactly what we do. We thrive on difference. Um, so uh, we, we view it as a really valuable, to have those different voices in the process is hugely valuable. In fact, I've just been, I'm writing an ebook at the moment on cognitive diversity, um, but the definition of, um, let me just find it, there it is. It, so when we talk about cognitive, it's the difference in perspective or information processing styles. That's, I think, what was really attractive about what you're doing, because there's so much similarity and, and crossover. You know, it's, it, was a, it, was, it was about genuinely being inclusiveness, because only once you've got proper diversity can you actually strike equilibrium.
And that's kind of was my point about sharing that story about just sitting around in a circle and talking. You know, we don't necessarily, you know, it's just about having that, that level of integration and people coming together and just, you know, meeting on an equal footing. And for me, it's about unity and bringing to people together. So with, you know, specifically, you know, what, why we value the cognitive diversity, um, and this does give everyone an equal voice, is because it's just how different individuals think about and engage with new, uncertain, or complex situations. So when you ask me about Black Lives Matter, I've had to do a huge amount of reading on that. And there's so much going on. I haven't really been able to unpick it. It's much more complex than um, a hashtag right now. So I don't have a straightforward answer. All I can say is, so, you know, it's led me in the last three or four weeks, it's led me to so much new stuff and read so much stuff. Um, yeah. That didn't really answer your question. But. Yeah, I think it's the current thinking and, and I think it, it just shows the level of complexity of anything. There are so many ways to, to read up or look at things, but really connecting the dots on where do you stand in that? You know, where would you want to be in that? Because you're right, there are, I guess, a lot of, it's easy to use the hashtag. Yeah. But what does that really mean longer term, I think, would be more interesting, right? What does that mean in putting it into action later yeah. on? Yeah. I think that's where you really know which companies, organisations and institutions that really, you know, kind of care about that union sort of space. Um, Brilliant. Okay, well, we'd better wrap up. But thank you so much for taking the time. Well, no, likewise. For inviting. That brings us to the end of this great conversation with Rachel. It was good to discover her ideas around cultural intelligence and how extreme users and hard-to-reach people can help us to design more vibrant and meaningful products and services. We'll be back soon with another mind-expanding conversation. Thank you for tuning in to the Sense Network. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did like it, we'd love to hear what you think. So please leave us a comment and share it with your friends. In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram, that's at The Sense Network. And if you want to get hands-on with an innovation project to make things better and make better things for people and the planet, join The Sense Network, linked in the description. Thanks for joining, and see you next time.